strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and make yourself comfortable. The uh, gentleman to my right, of course, is my valet, Wilkinson. Pleased to meet you. He'll be uh, doing the readings from any books we'll be quoting. We'll be hearing uh, quite a lot more from him this week as the sources this time around just seemed so full of uh, material I wanted to share. I hope we won't tire him out. I wouldn't worry about that. I know we didn't really make use of your talents that much in our last episode, so I thought this might make up for it. I'm looking forward to it. I know you were disappointed last week when you saw how few lines you had. Oh, no. What, whatever's called for. I know the needs are different for each show. Really? I got a pretty strong feeling you were upset. Leaving all the books out after the show for two days like that. The books? I got the message. Oh, I do apologize for being a bit slow with the reshelving, but it certainly had Look, nothing to do with I it. understand there are egos at play here. It's natural. Uh, my schedule was just off last week with the basement flooding. Creative projects and egos just go hand in hand. It's part of the process. I accept that and forgive you. I can assure you the reshelving will be more punctual in the future. But you were upset. You can at least admit that. Perhaps, if anything, I was a bit tired. You know, I was bailing out water for nearly six hours both Friday and Saturday. Is that what you were doing down there? I thought you were sulking. Uh, is my stuff all okay? The water didn't reach any of your items. Well, I'm sorry you had to do all that by yourself, but you know we can't have workmen down there. Not in the basement. Then we get... Questions and opinions and speculation. That's how rumors get started. It's all cleaned up now. Well, that's good to hear. It's been quite a week with the flooding and hurt feelings and artistic temperaments. You realize you're an artist, right? A voice artist. I suppose you could take it that way. You're an artist. Never sell yourself short. Well, thank you. You know, all this makes sense of the bleach, the smell of bleach. I thought I was imagining it yesterday, but you must have been scrubbing down there after the flooding. To prevent mildew, yes. I apologize for the smell. It was rather strong, especially down there without any real windows. Oh my, well, I hope you took breaks for fresh air. Yes, and brought in a few fans. Good man. I certainly don't want you breathing in noxious fumes till you pass out. The last thing we need is to have paramedics down there nosing around. No, sir. Anyway, this episode should really showcase your talents. I, I think you'll be happy. Uh, so, uh, we'll get going. Episode 21, A Deal with the Devil. So, I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, as you likely know, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a uh, historical context. I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. 
Um, bonus Sickle is made possible exclusively through the generosity of our Patreon donors, and I'll have more details on all that at the end of the show. Bakari, laka, bakari, lama, kari, agabade, karelio, lama, namek, bakaria. What you're hearing is a piece called Satanic Mass by the American band Coven from their oddly titled 1969 album, Witchcraft Destroys Minds and Reaps Souls, which was the inspiration for all the uh, diabolical stylings of uh, heavy metal music yet to come. The first lines of the piece are also found in an invocation known as the uh, Witch's Chant, handed down by Gerald Gardner, founder of modern Wicca. Their literal meaning is unknown, as is the language used, though it's sometimes suggested they represent a, a, a garbled version of Basque. What we do know is that they first appear in a 13th century French play, The Miracle of Theophilus, by the uh, minstrel Lutbeff. Uh, they are put in the mouth of a sorcerer by the name of Saladin, who uses them to summon the devil. Now, this uh, Theophilus, though he happens to be a saint, also is known for making a deal with the devil. It's the first story of its kind, and therefore a precedent for the uh, Faust story we'll be examining in this episode. Theophilus was a cleric in 6th century Adana in modern Turkey, and a uh, pious and humble man. So humble, in fact, that when he was elected bishop, he turned down the position, desiring nothing more elevated than the role of archdeacon. Um, when another man assumed the bishop's place, however, and then refused to assign Theophilus uh, the expected office of archdeacon, he began rethinking all that Christian humility. And so he decides the devil might help him obtain the bishop's seat and requests that Saladin summon the Dark One using the chant in question. The devil is happy to oblige as long as Theophilus simply renounces Christ and the Virgin Mary and signs a contract in his own blood. The paperwork's completed and Theophilus is appointed bishop. Of course, he wouldn't really be a saint if that were the end of the story. Um, so as guilt and fear begin to weigh upon him, Theophilus seeks forgiveness via prayer and fasting. After 40 days, the Blessed Virgin appears to him, offering uh, at first only stern words, but eventually softening and agreeing to intercede on his behalf. After 30 more days, she appears again and is now willing to offer absolution, but Satan is a bit more stubborn and leaves the signed contract in Theophilus' bedchamber as a taunting reminder of the debt due. A terrified Theophilus at last flees to the sitting bishop, offering full confession and producing the signed contract as evidence. The bishop simply burns the document, which I guess is enough to render all null and void. And Theophilus is forgiven, free, and so happy that then and there, on the spot, he dies. Presumably goes to heaven. Our show, as I've said, is focused on that archetypal maker of deals with the devil, the German scholar and magician Faust, who in English also tends to go by the uh, Latinized version of the name Faustus. 
I talked to you a bit about Goethe's uh, two-part play Faust in regards to the uh, Walpurgisnacht scenes in our first episode. But uh, Goethe's Faust, which was produced in the early 1800s, is very much a literary work of enlightenment sensibilities. And in this episode, we'll be examining earlier understandings of the figure, those closer to uh, old folklore and, and legend. There does seem to have been an actual magician or astrologer or alchemist by the name of Faust wandering southern Germany in the late 15th and early 16th century. Johann Georg Faust is the name most often found in the records. Uh, two different possible places of birth have been recorded, but the town most associated with him is uh, Wittenberg. And in a travelogue written in 1591 by the Englishman uh, Finnis Morrison, he records, They show a house wherein Dr. Faustus, a famous conjurer, dwelt. They say that this doctor lived there about the year 1500, and had a tree all blasted and burnt in the adjoining wood where he practiced his magic art. The years 1480 and 1466 have both been uh, recorded as uh, years of his birth, with uh, 1541 usually cited for his death. It's also possible there were two itinerant magicians going about with the name Faust or some version thereof. He's sometimes a physician or professor of philosophy, but more frequently some kind of magician, either an alchemist or astrologer, and is most usually a fraudulent one, a con man of sorts. We see him in uh, 1506 in the uh, town of Gelnhausen, mentioned as uh, casting horoscopes and performing various uh, feats of magic. A letter from 1513 refers to a Faust as a practitioner of palmistry and mentions he's been heard boasting of impossible uh, feats in an inn in the uh, town of Erfurt. Town records uh, from Ingolstadt and Nuremberg uh, show him banned from those environs in 1528 and 1532, respectively. There are also a few attestations of a more positive nature. A Tübingen professor writing in 1536 praising his astrological skills, and another letter from 1539 recognizing his abilities in medicine. The theologian Johannes Gast mentions a personal meeting with this mystery man in uh, Basel, Switzerland in 1548 remarking that he was accompanied by a horse and a dog that sometimes would transform into a human servant. Quite a few magical texts are attributed to Faust, including many penned in more recent centuries and backdated. A particularly powerful and dangerous book in English, uh, Dr. Faust's Howlmaster, is said to be buried behind Chemnitz Castle, then I find in an 1840 collection, uh, a volume called Folk Tales of Lower Saxony, mention of another book, The Book of Hell's Charms, which was said to be tethered by an iron chain within a church in the town of Zellerfeld. If read forward, its words summon the devil. But the book must be read backward to send him back to hell, which might prove a bit more difficult. There are also legends attached to certain works of sorcery Faust performed in various towns. Uh, in the university town of Erfurt, Faust was said to have lectured on the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, illustrating his talks by conjuring up living images of the figures, an entertaining extra which uh, entranced the students until the appearance of Polyphemus the Cyclops, which caused them to run screaming from the lecture room. 
He was also said to have produced impossible fruits and flowers from his garden in Erfurt during the snows of winter. Uh, there's a similar tale told in the Duchy of Anhalt, where he's said to have conjured an entire castle to which he invited the uh, local count and countess. There they encountered his menagerie of bears, camels, apes, and ostriches, uh, heard beautiful music from an invisible source, and were treated to a sumptuous breakfast served by Faust and his assistant Wagner. According to the uh, German legend book of 1853, After spending more than an hour in this place, the party left the beautiful palace. As they were returning home, they looked back at the new palace and saw and heard it go up in flames with the sound of rifles and cannons. Faustus and Wagner had disappeared, and they were all suddenly as hungry as lions. They had to have breakfast once again, for everything they'd eaten had merely been an illusion. Though the uh, standard uh, Faust narrative identifies the village of Rimlich near uh, Wittenberg as the site of Faust's death, a number of other towns compete for that honor. In uh, Malbronn, a five-story monastery gate tower is said to be the place of his demise, and a bloody-looking stain is pointed out by guides as evidence. Cologne boasts a window through which the devil was said to have snatched away the sinner, and the town of uh, Staufen in Breisgau promotes the uh, Gasthaus zum Löwen, or the Hotel of the uh, Lion, as the historic site. There's a commemorative mural on the end's wall, and a specific room even where it's said to have happened, number five, which you can reserve for the night in case you'd like to see if a devil might make a return trip. Eventually, these legends coalesced into written form. Uh, published anonymously in Frankfurt in uh, 1587, the history of Dr. Johann Faustus was the first uh, significant collection and largely defined the character for all uh, future iterations. Known as the uh, Faust book, the uh, chapbook was reissued many times with new insertions of further folk tales and philosophical dialogues and bits of religious rhetoric. Um, and by 1594, a uh, loose translation in English had appeared. The story describes a scholar who has mastered the fields of medicine and mathematics and various branches of magic without finding satisfaction. In his arrogance, he decides to summon the devil to fulfill his wishes. For his ritual, he chooses an isolated location in the mountainous forests of the uh, Spessart. This uh, area in south-central Germany, where the uh, Brothers Grimm happened to grow up, is uh, particularly rich in legends of fairies and ghosts and robbers, and is uh, strongly associated with the Snow White story. So it was here in this forest that he draws his magic circle and calls upon the Dark One. Suddenly, according to our 1587 chapbook, there is... Such a tumult in the forest that everything seemed about to be destroyed. He blew up such a wind that the trees were bent to the very ground. Then it seemed, as were the wood with devils filled, who rode along past Dr. Faustus circle. Now only their coaches were to be seen. Then from the four corners of the forest, something like lightning bolts converged on Dr. Faustus circle, and a loud explosion ensued. When all this was past, it became light in the midst of the forest many sweet instruments, music, and song could be heard. There were various dances, too, 
and tournaments with spears and swords. Faust is full of fear but pushes forward with his ritual. Hellish demons appear as... A griffin or a dragon hovering and fluttering above the circle. And when Dr. Faustus then applied his spell, the beast shrieked piteously. Soon thereafter, a fiery star fell down from three or four fathoms above his head and was transformed into a glowing ball. He did conjure the star once, twice, and a third time, whereupon a gush of fire from the sphere shot up as high as a man and settled again, and six little lights became visible upon it. Now one little light would leap upward, now a second downward, until the form of a burning man finally emerged. Out of all this emerges Satan's agent, Mephistopheles. Now a devil, or a spirit, appeared in the figure of a grey friar, greeted Dr. Faustus, and asked what his desire and intent might be. The specific deal made, of course, involves Faust renouncing the Christian faith in return for any and every wish he might have being magically fulfilled. At the end of 24 years, however, the magician's soul will be claimed by the devil. Uh, Mephistopheles sees to it that the contract is signed in blood. From that point onward, Mephistopheles uh, sees to Faust's needs and accompanies him on his adventures along with his assistant, a reckless lout named Christoph Wagner. After Faust and Wagner are supplied with rich clothes and food by the enslaved demon, the magician turns to the pursuit of uh, higher things, of further knowledge, engaging Mephistopheles in dialogues regarding things hidden from mere mortals, magic and the heavens, astrology, the fall of Lucifer, and the nature of hell. Mephistopheles' answers are not all straightforward as one might expect from a devil, and Faust conceives the notion to satisfy his curiosity firsthand regarding uh, hell. He would like to arrange a private tour. Uh, Mephistopheles requests that Lucifer send a demon to safely conduct his master on such an adventure, and an old wrinkled ape named Beelzebub shows up. Yes, answered Beelzebub, I will come at midnight and fetch thee. Well, when it got pitch dark, Beelzebub appeared unto him, bearing upon his back a bone chair that was quite enclosed round about. Here Dr. Faustus took a seat, and they flew away. Faust's bone chair becomes a sort of skeletal roller coaster car as they plunge into the devil's realm. His thrill ride traverses a range of confusingly surreal geography and takes in scenes with flying dragons, battling flying stags, a colossal raging bull, uh, assaults by lightning, flames, and a great multitude of serpents and snakes, the latter being unspeakably big. Flying lions came to his aid this time. They wrestled and struggled with the great snakes until they conquered them, so that he passed through safely and well. They arrive at hell's lowest level. Here were many worthy personages in a fire. Emperors, kings, princes, and lords, many thousand knights and men-at-arms. A cool stream ran along the edge of the fire, and here were some drinking, refreshing themselves and bathing, but some were fleeing from its cold back into the fire. 
Before long, Beelzebub returns with that trusty bone chair to make for the exit. Away they soared, for he could not long have endured the thunderclaps, fog, fumes, sulfur, water, cold, and heat, particularly since it was compounded with wailing, weeping, and moaning of woe, anguish, and pain. Faust's further adventures include being whisked around Germany to astound various nobles with his powers. At the court of Charles V in Munich, for instance... Now, with the aid of his spirit Mephistopheles, Faustus did charm a pair of heart's horns upon the knight's head. This good lord's head nodded upon the windowsill. He awoke and perceived the prank. Who could have been more distressed? For the windows being closed, he could go neither forward nor backward with his antlers, nor could he force the horns from off his head. The emperor, observing his plight, laughed and was well pleased. There are more absurd magical pranks, wheels made to fly off a wagon into the sky, uh, magical burglaries of the wine cellars of various nobles, uh, even a theft of a banquet stolen off the pope's own table. When Faust arrives in Constantinople, he sleeps with the concubines in the sultan's harem and even impersonates Mohammed. Visiting Frankfurt for carnival, Faust encounters four fellow sorcerers. Who were attracting a great audience by chopping off one another's heads and sending them to the barber to be trimmed. Faust causes one of the bodies to vanish, so its head is left with no home, because he's jealous of these magical rivals and, as the book has it, liked to think that he were the only cock in the devil's basket. Faust even conjures from the past the famous beauty Helen of Troy, and eventually has a son with her. But as the years wear on and his date with the devil approaches, he grows morose and retires to an inn with his students and followers to prepare himself. Or, as the book lays it out, Chapter 42, Dr. Faustus, his lamentation that he must die at a young and lusty age. Followed by, Chapter 43, Dr. Faustus lamenteth yet further. And in chapter 44, the devil gets his due. We do not witness the devil's arrival itself, but share the perspective of the students occupying nearby rooms in the inn. And it came to pass between 12 and 1 o'clock in the night that a great blast of wind stormed against the house blustering on all sides, as if the inn and indeed the entire neighborhood would be torn down. Over the raging of the wind, they heard a hideous music, as if snakes, adders, and other serpents were in the house. Dr. Faustus' door creaked open. There then arose a crying out of murder and help, but the voice was weak and hollow, soon dying out entirely. The next morning, they investigate the source of the strange sounds. The parlor was full of blood. Brain cleaved unto the walls where the fiend had dashed him from one to the other. Here lay his eyes, here a few teeth. Oh, it was a hideous spectacle. Then began the students to bewail and beweep him, seeking him in many places. When they came out to the dung heap, here they found his corpse. It was monstrous to behold, for head and limbs were still twitching. 
So it's with this, along with a few pious exhortations to heed Faust's example and comments about the inn being haunted to this day, this ends the history of Dr. Johann Faustus. Dr. John Faustus, who bequeathed his soul to the devil in exchange for the powers of hell. Quite naturally, the Faust legend has been the subject of a number of films, both good and bad. Uh, one of the finest and earliest is the 1926 German film, Faust, directed by F.W. Murnau, who four years earlier had given audiences the vampire classic Nosferatu. Of course, I'm not using audio clips from a silent movie. Uh, instead, it's... Richard Burton, universally acclaimed as one of the greatest actors of our time, gives us yet another brilliant portrayal as Faustus, whose friends were the devil's disciples. This 1967 film, directed by Burton himself, is basically a filmed version of a 1966 stage production at his Oxford alma mater. Though it received mostly bad reviews, horror fans may find it of interest thanks to its uh, visual style, which resembles a hammer film of the period. That the sets are dark and or luridly lit with uh, skulls, a, a skeleton that transforms into a rotting corpse, and hallucinatory sequences featuring the seven deadly sins and sinners flogging themselves in hell and harems of semi-naked women. And for mainstream audiences, there was uh, supposed to be another attraction, romantic chemistry. Elizabeth Taylor as the beautiful Helen of Troy. Burton, Taylor. Burton, Taylor. They come together in sin and temptation to reenact the story of Dr. Faustus. Unfortunately, the Helen of Troy figure employed in the Elizabethan script is uh, little more than a sort of apparition and is given not a single line to speak. Taylor at least looks intriguing, however, in her thick silver makeup and shiny foil curls, and in her brief scene as Medusa dragging Faust down to hell. So the Elizabethan script I mentioned being used for the Burton film was The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus, uh, written between 1589 and 92 by Christopher Marlowe. The play is the source of the famous line regarding Helen of Troy. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? I will go through the play in great detail as it mostly follows the chapbook story we've just looked at. Uh, some changes or additions it makes include uh, lending a bit of gravitas to Faust's pursuits. He's more of a um, renaissance figure, pursuing truth at its highest level and less interested in prankish stunts and costly food and drink and women, which is not to say the plays without its own sense of fun. There's a character simply called Clown, who's the servant of Faust's servant Wagner, and there's a pair of comic stable hands, uh, Rafe and Robin, the latter of which gets a hold of one of Faust's uh, spell books, uh, schooling himself in magic, with goals that satirize Faust's own loftier infatuation with Helen of Troy. As Robin declares at one point, Now will I make all the maidens of our parish dance at my pleasure, stark naked before me. Marlowe also adds a number of allegorical figures, uh, 
good angel and bad angel to advise uh, Faust, exactly as you would expect. And uh, actors representing the seven deadly sins are paraded out as an extra amusement uh, by Lucifer when Faust shows signs of wanting to renege on his contract. Skipping ahead a bit in theater history, there's a much more comic take on the tale written by William Montfort in uh, 1697. The life and death of Dr. Faustus made into a farce with Harlequin and Scaramouche. Uh, Scaramouche, like Harlequin, is one of the uh, stock figures from the Italian uh, Commedia dell'arte, sort of semi-improvised street theater from which our circus clowns evolved. Um, in Montfort's uh, play, Scaramouche takes the role of Faust's assistant and is a person of low morals. To give you a taste of the play's humor, there's a scene in which Faust describes the sort of person the devil loves, and Scaramouche assures Faust that he would be the devil's darling, as he avoids all the usual acts of Christian piety. I never saw a church in my life, thank God. I mean the devil. And for fasting, it was always my abomination. And for alms, I never gave a thing in my life, but the itch once to a pawnbroker. There are also some amusing monologues by the Seven Deadly Sins, which Wilkinson will now share with us. I am gluttony, begot of a plowman on a washerwoman, who devoured a cheddar cheese in two hours. I am of a royal pedigree. My grandfather was a sir, loin of beef and my mother a gammon of bacon. Now, Faustus, thou hast heard my pedigree. Wilt thou invite me to supper? And Sloth, who was too lazy to provide much of an intro. Hey ho, I am Sloth. I was begotten at church by a sleepy judge on a fruit seller's wife in the middle of a long sermon. I am as lazy as a fishmonger in the dog days, or a parson in Lent. I would not speak another word for a king's ransom. Unsurprisingly, a contemporary reviewer deemed the play a contemptible production. Though, personally, I find the play delightful. You cannot now deny what we've agreed. So with your blood, come sign the deed. So further so-called degradation of the story occurred as it was translated into puppet shows, which became particularly popular in Germany. These could be full of uh, rough humor and bizarre plot trajectories and spectacular stagecraft gimmicks. A 1688 production in Bremen featured Pluto riding on a dragon, a clown fighting magic birds, and a ballet. A Parisian production remarked upon in 1858 climax with the volcanic destruction of Pompeii for some reason. Uh, by the way, uh, you've been hearing something of the audio from the... Uh, 1994 film Faust, directed by Czech animator Jan Svankmajer. Uh, it draws heavily on the Faust puppet tradition of his own country, mixing live action with surreal segments featuring stop-motion puppets, and, uh, like all of his films, is uh, truly delightful.
The Faust story by that name or simply by its themes has been explored in innumerable creative forms. In film alone, treatments range from the amusing, swinging 60s treatment by Peter Cook and Dudley Moore in their 1967 film Bedazzled. You'd sell your soul for a movie as funny as this. To the perfectly dreadful 2000 horror superhero film Faust, Love of the Damned, which uh, even the sympathetic horror uh, fan website Dread Central called utter, utter trash. All I ask in return is your immortal soul. Just sign here. Now go forth and mutilate. Faust has also been the subject of a number of operatic treatments, and I'd like to close our show with a bit about an epic failure of a 2015 staging of one of these. It was uh, The Damnation of Faust, written in 1846 by the French romantic composer Hector Berlioz. It's actually not quite an opera, as its characters are constantly traveling through settings on earth, heaven, and hell in a way that really makes staging difficult. So Berlioz first termed it a concert opera, later settling on the term dramatic legend to describe the uh, composition. In any case, this didn't stop the uh, Paris National Opera from attempting to stage it in 2015, a production that was greeted with overwhelming booing at its premiere, according to a review in Opera News. The staging was avant-garde to say the least. A review in The Guardian describes a romantic aria sung by the lead mezzo-soprano to a projected background of snails mating with the predictable effect. The audience collapses in hoots of derision. Worse still, the director, Alvis Hermanis, chose to visualize Faust in the person of disabled physicist Stephen Hawking, or a uh, wheelchair-bound actor closed in a glass booth, understood to represent a sort of double to the performer actually singing the Faust part. In uh, Berlioz's story, Faust redeems himself by offering his life in place of a woman with which he has fallen in love. Though the Stephen Hawking character is all but immobile throughout the production, this scene of spiritual redemption was visualized in the production via a weird sort of... sort of Dr. Strangelove moment, with the Hawking rising from his chair in what Opera News described as a scene of tasteless horror. And that was it, the end. As the writer for The Guardian observed, the curtain falls and the booing begins. I hope this scene of a slightly different kind of horror is a more fitting ending for our show. Uh... Actually, there's one more operatic treatment of Faust I should mention before I end. That would be Charles Gounod's uh, Faust, composed in 1858. And this happens to be the opera that forms the background to Gaston Leroux's uh, 1911 novel, The Phantom of the Opera. But that's for our next episode. A strange connection to another folkloric story of dealings with the devil. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our shows and that you may have the opportunity to share episodes you've been listening to with uh, friends. We particularly appreciate reviews as these are the best way to raise the show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and other distributors. 
If you've left a review, uh, by all means, let me know, and we'll give you a little shout-out on the show. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter, along with show notes uh, rich with images and video links to uh, all the film trailers and clips and music used in the program. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for this show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the show soundscapes you hear in the background under my voice, and my Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and support via Patreon is the sole support that makes possible me continuing to regularly make available this rather labor-intensive production. Special thanks to our new patrons, uh, Lucy Porter, Jacob Derby, James R. Uh, Hitala, I hope I got that right, and thanks for a particularly generous pledge to Heather DeVilla. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>